0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm your host Chad Kim, with me as always are Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. In our final week with Athanasius, we discuss his long four-part treatise, Orations Against the Arians. We have a bit of a free-flowing discussion, beginning with a question about the contemporary use of the term Arian, before drilling into the competing hermeneutics. Tom comes to an epiphany about the power of Athanasius' logic, which ultimately leads to a discussion of whether or not the heretic is necessary we end with some final considerations about the background of Arius theology and why theology has the dialectical character it does. And I'm using that term in a slightly different manner from the way Karl Barth will use it in the 20th century when we ever get that far. Uh, I'm sorry about the delay between podcasts. As I said on the Facebook page, I've been traveling a lot and have not had time to edit our episodes. Uh, But please continue to write in your questions and comments. We will continue to respond to those in the podcast, and we really appreciate hearing from our listeners. Also, if you wouldn't mind, please rate us and review us on iTunes. It will really help the reach of this podcast. We will not be recording next week, so we will not have responses to the two or three most recent questions that we have received, uh, but we should get those up within two weeks. So sorry about the delay, but we really do appreciate your questions. So keep writing them in to facebook.com slash Theology. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Well, we read portions of Athanasius' Discourses Against the Arians. Uh, so it's probably written in the late 350s. Um, so this is a number of years after the Council of Nicaea. There, uh, Arius is dead. Arius is dead. Uh, there's some debate as to who particularly uh, was carrying the mantle of the Arians at this point. Um, uh, Asterius, uh, Asterius is at least one guy that is mentioned in the third book. Uh, by Athanasius as possible as a possible sort of neo aryan and one part that we could even just start debating with right away is to to what good is it to call someone an Arian anymore? And we because we say it as if it's a school. And Rowan Williams actually in the book that I was reading goes to great lengths to say that there wasn't really a school of Arius, as far as we know. He might have had a few pupils, uh, but uh, and certainly after. Um, after his theology is condemned, there's some debate as to, you know, why anybody would even want to associate themselves with Arius. And then, you know, so there are – but there, there are some neo Arians, if you like, um, some some um, anti-Nicene thinkers about this time period that Athanasius is writing against. Um, but, uh, but nobody seems to want to be called an Arian. So what good is it to have this label – um, and to throw it at people, you know is it a kind of a is it a kind of label that just automatically condemns you to to heresy and you sort of win the debate I mean you know so one of the things that that like contemporary uh scholars of the period do is they try to uncover exactly what these thinkers said who are labeled her- heretics um so is is it is it even helpful to call someone an Aryan? I guess would be the first question because Athanasius isn't writing to Arius directly.
1: Well, I think that gets into questions of philosophy of language. I mean, there's no question that you can easily pigeonhole what Arius believes. Maybe easily is over, an overstatement, but for the most part, I think I can give a pretty good explanation of what Arius believes. And that is for the most part, what a large number of people believe. And we as humans give labels to things. It, it is very helpful to think of things in, I mean, as universals in that sense, so to speak. I mean, so we call people Calvinists, we call them Arminians, we call them Roman Catholics. I mean, yeah, Arius may not have been a school, right, in the traditional sense. You may not have had, like, the school of uh, the peripatetics or something along those lines in the same way, but what people believed about the Godhead seems pretty consistent with what Arius said, and it's, it's a matter of convenience to speak of them that way. And there are groups today that believe largely what he believed. I mean, the Jehovah's Witness view of the Godhead, as far as I can tell, is almost exactly what Arius believed. And certainly, Jehovah's Witnesses look at them as the spiritual offspring of Arius. So they believe that Jesus was a created being, that he was the first created being, that everything else was created by him and through him, everything except for himself, that it is proper to refer to Jesus as the Word of God, it's proper to refer to him as the Son of God, it's proper to refer to him as a God, but it's not proper to refer to him as the God. All of those things are essentially the assertions of Arius. They would say there was a time when he was not. Um, you know, They would even use the same arguments that Arius used, That I mean, both from Scripture and from reason. So obviously one of the big arguments that uh, Athanasius addresses is, is the fact that Arius says that if the Son is begotten, that implies a temporal relationship. That implies if the Son is begotten of the Father, it implies the Son must have come after the Father. And that's exactly what a Jehovah's Witness would say today. So, and I'm less familiar with Unitarians. I, I don't know to what degree Unitarians espouse the Arian view, but I've heard some do that it's the same, but I'm not sure. I've heard some of them, but not all of them. And,
0: yeah, well, I. Don't so know. I, I-
2: well, I was going to say to that point that, yeah, just the label is helpful because, I don't know, not all things we call Calvinism are even technically things Calvin taught sometimes. Yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> or nor do they all agree with each other. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of disagreements amongst Calvinists, but it's a, it's a helpful shorthand to kind of caricature what they believe about soteriology, about yeah. salvation. I, and I've seen people call, like, for example,
2: I've I've heard someone say that, oh, you know, that guy, he's reformed. And really, the guy, like, is just like a, he goes to like an evangelical church, but he happens to be Calvinist. And people get all up in arms about using the word reformed in that way as well. And I'm always just like, I don't know, there's a colloquialism here where, yeah, like Tom said, it's just helpful. Though Arius did not have a school.
0: Okay. Well, so let's, um, I'll, I'll take it the next step here. And I'll like, this is just by way of introduction. I mean, Tom's sort of given you the background of sort of the fundamental point about, of, of which Arius believes. So basically in these treatises, in these discourses against Arius, or against the Arians, uh, plural, that Athanasius writes, um, at least one whole uh, discourse is basically written about Proverbs 8.22. Um, and in this passage, um, speaking about wisdom, it states, uh, this is just the yeah, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works, before his deeds of old. Um, and some some even say he created me. That's actually katidzo is the well, it's the Septuagint form. Um, and so um, which I don't think we've discussed this, but the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament uh that was used predominantly uh by the church. As far as we can tell, um even in the West, uh, Augustine actually says that uh, the Septuagint is the Old Testament version that, that he uses. He uses a Latin translation of Septuagint. But I digress because that changes with Jerome. Um, but nevertheless, um, the primary scriptural passage at issue, there, there are several of them, uh, but this is the one that gets the most weight. Um, and it, it says, if Jesus is the wisdom and Jesus is the word, and Proverbs talks about uh, the wi- that wisdom is brought forth as the first of the works of the Father— before his deeds of old, well, then he must be created first. So I'm not sure that I've ever heard a Jehovah's Witness use Proverbs 8 um, as their defense of why they believe that Jesus was created, although the theological position is the same. And the reason I bring this up is to say that what seems interesting to me is that there's a battle of hermeneutics going on. There's a battle of interpretation of scripture. Um, You know, as much as Arius is a heretic, Arius thinks that he has a reading of scripture that is consistent, um, with, uh, also with John, where he says that, um, uh, I'm in the father and the father is in me. Um, and, and a passage from Philippians two, where he says the father exalted me. Um, and so uh, there's some other things that are an issue for Arius, but, but part of it is he's reading scripture. He's reading this passage and he thinks, yeah, this is the best way to understand this and to understand who the Logos is in relationship to Jesus. So I'll start there and say, you know, what of what of what do we make of this? Uh, we got, you know, is we've got basically two competing interpretations of Scripture. I think that's a I think it's a good point.
1: It's one. It, it was funny that we read that 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 was one of the sections. I was so I mean I sorry about this, but I was just so uninterested in that section. Um, in watching Athanasius defend that, I think it's to the point you're making because I feel no compunction whatsoever to take that Proverbs passage and defend it as even referring to Jesus. I mean, when I read Proverbs, the whole section in Proverbs on the wisdom of God I take to be a personification of the nature of God's wisdom and not any making any theologically significant statement about the second person of the Trinity. I should add that New Testament writers also do not make that connection at all. There's no, there's no obvious connection in the New Testament to the wisdom passages of Proverbs as referring to Jesus. However, to defend Arius a little bit here, not to defend him personally, but um, that was the practice of the church. I mean, as we've been reading through the fathers, I've seen many times where Tertullian or one of the fathers who was talking about the nature of the uh, of the Son would, in fact, equate Jesus with the wisdom of God. Um, and I do believe there's one New Testament verse where Jesus is referred to as the wisdom of God, but they don't make the, the, the specific connection to the Proverbs passage. So when I read that stuff, if I, if, when I read in the New Testament Jesus being referred to as the wisdom of God, to some degree although i think there might be something going on there in a metaphysical ontological sense meaning like in reality i think mostly it's metaphorical in some sense it's it's trying to grasp the nature of the godhead through human terms and com, you know com, making comparisons there so i don't feel any compulsion to rectify or to to yeah to rectify or to make the passage in proverbs fit with my theology however given that the practice of the church was to interpret Proverbs as referring to Jesus, and given that that gives Arius this this passage there, which says wisdom was brought forth, which then forces Athanasius to try to reconcile the two, to try to explain how Jesus can have been brought forth and at the same time still be eternal. And he gives from you know there was actually some really good stuff I read last night I thought, but he gives what I take to be kind of the weakest explanation uh of the of the reading that I that I came across
2: I felt like Tom in the same sense because I don't know exactly what all their thoughts were uh, you know these early church fathers that is to say the time and I'm kind of curious as to how I mean obviously if Athanasius is taking the charge seriously, they must really be equating the two um, it, it looks like. Uh, equating the two being they're equating the wisdom uh, in Proverbs, the wisdom of God that is with Jesus. They must, you must really be likening the two together. But whenever I read it, I read it in a common sense kind of way. Like, well, yeah, this is a helpful uh, thing. And, oh, this is a cool idea. But at the same time, like this was written by a Jewish guy as poetry way back before Jesus was ever born. And he was trying to, yeah, personify wisdom itself. And to say it's the first of his creations is kind of, in a way, just like saying, well, God had a mind and wisdom comes from your mind. And so, of course, in a way, like if God's a thinking thing, it's like the first of the things that comes to be. I mean, it's to me, it's sort of even even the metaphor, though, doesn't even really bring. The, up that big of an issue which is what another thing I thought was strange it's like if I was talking about Chad's wisdom and I wanted to literally personify it and talk about it as a person Chad's wisdom she is so mighty and beautiful it was the first thing Chad ever did like yeah it's well yeah because the first thing you do is you think like it's like you you're not even there if you're not thinking it's like essentially I say first in the sense that literally you existing is you thinking in this sense and, and even more so for God on the sense that he'd never even had to cognitively develop. So it's, even when I think of the, the metaphor, it's like, well, duh. I mean, and it's, and why is this even a really that big of a deal? So I don't know. I didn't, I didn't well, see a reason for this either, but
0: at least part of the issue is the relationship between the distant, like, and we, we've discussed this a little bit, um, when we did the council of Nicaea, but the relationship of this sort of distant God who is, um, God, the ground of being, um, God, the monad, the simple, the undivided, um, God that is beyond all. This is sort of the platonic notion of God. And so Arius, um, you know, maybe fairly, maybe unfairly is closer to Plato, closer to the Middle Platonists, and he wants to find a way to preserve this distant God and have a mediator who is Jesus Christ. And so God had to create, or who is the Logos who becomes Jesus Christ. And so in order to preserve the mystery of this distant being, um, you know, he says, okay, we've got this passage in Proverbs that talks about what we all know is uh, the Logos. It's the logic the wisdom, the reason, um, of God, and it was created. Um, and we know it was created because of Proverbs. And so, you know, you do have this guy who says, you know, who has this notion about who God is and about whether or not God can, can touch creation or be involved in creation. And so for him, it takes two things. Okay. An understanding of G- of the Logos wisdom and an understanding of God as a distant being that's simply the ground that all, of all that is, that's undivided. And actually what's interesting um, is, as I understand, part of the response, even by Athanasius, is that it's impossible for God to be divided. Um, that is one claim that he makes, and he says, you know, basically if you believe that uh, the, the Logos has any relationship to God, God is dividing himself, and, and so sort of as a, as a metaphysical problem um, – Both Athanasius and Arius share some similarities about the conception of God, uh, but Athanasius is able to reconcile um, God as as this distant, simple being um, with the fact that his son uh, also takes on flesh. And, you know, yeah, so we can work out—maybe we should work out theologically why it's so important uh, that they have this connection. But anyway— I just thought I'd point that out. That is part of the philosophical background uh, in which Arius is working. And it also just occurs to me, I, I should stop, but it also occurs to me that, that we have interesting definitions of literal. There's a literal interpretation going on in both Athanasius and Arius that's different from the kind of literal interpretation that we do. Yeah,
1: and, you know, really quickly, just kind of, um, uh, just to kind of, make sure to draw our listeners' attention to something you just said about how, you know, Arius is a bit of a middle Platonist or, or something along those lines. Uh, you know, that's directly something that Athanasius accuses uh, Arius of, of being, essentially. He doesn't say middle Platonist. And for our listeners, just a reminder, you know, Platonism is, at its core, when we bring that up, we're talking about the fact that matter is considered bad and God being good cannot interact with it. Well, Athanasius accuses Arius of just being a Gnostic, which if you guys recall, if you go back to our earlier episodes where the church writers were focusing mostly on Gnosticism, the Gnostics believed that the good God, the creator God, had to create these emanations that poured out from himself, each one becoming successively inferior, so that you could get to one that could in fact work with matter. And to a certain degree, Athanasius accuses Arius of thinking something like this, that God couldn't himself bring matter into existence because of its intrinsic, you know, badness, for lack of a better word. Um, And so he created an intermediary being to create everything. That was kind of what he accused him. So he's essentially saying, look, Arius, you're just a Gnostic. You're just another Gnostic. Uh, and, and I think that was a, I, for me, I'd never thought of it that way. And I think that's a kind of a fair point. I would like to get back to one thing I referenced really quickly, just to be fair, kind of all the way around the fact, uh, you know, I referenced the fact that the new Testament never takes that wisdom passage and applies it to the issue of Jesus being the wisdom of God. However, I do want to make sure everybody is aware. First Corinthians one 24 does say to those God is called both Jew and Greek Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, so it does make that claim. I still don't think, I mean, again, I don't think that Paul had in mind there the Proverbs passage. I don't think he was trying to say that the stuff that that wisdom says in Proverbs was necessarily the word of Jesus itself. But I did want to, to make sure that our readers understood, uh, you know, Arius's or Athanasius's response this argument, as best as I understand it. He essentially said, so again, just a reminder, Proverbs 8.22 says that God brought forth wisdom. And Arius argues that the bringing forth implies creation. And to a certain degree, Athanasius is beside himself. He he says, are you saying that God once didn't have wisdom? Like, that would be nonsense. And so he says that God obviously always had wisdom, and that what he means here is, is that he is bringing that wisdom to bear? That he is using it to to that when it says that he brought forth wisdom, it means he's applying his wisdom to the situation. He's laying a foundation. And I should add, a moment ago I said I didn't like um, Athanasius's response, but as I, it's weird. I know this might sound strange, but just in the last five minutes, as I've been thinking about it, I think actually I just misunderstood it. I think because I think he actually makes a lot of sense. He used a metaphor instead of what I'm saying. He said that what it means is that God laid a foundation uh, with that wisdom. And so bringing forth meant the foundation. And he referenced uh, 1 Corinthians where God says that, uh, you know, no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's a weak connection. But as I've been sitting here and mulling it over, I realized, oh, he just means it's bringing it to bear on creation. He's applying wisdom, which I think is a, Very good interpretation of that. Clearly, the writer of the proverb was not actually thinking that God once didn't have wisdom and had to
0: create it to bring it into existence. Yeah. Well, that's kind of, I mean, we could get on a real interesting tangent here. But one thing I will say that comes up a lot in the Greek is Athanasius talks about the scopus, the aim, the overall intention of scripture. Does a larger picture of Scripture show a God that is distant and other and unable to be involved in creation, or does it show a God who's intimately related to creation and who creates and recreates um, in uh, the the in the Logos becoming flesh? And one distinction that he makes too, that's important that we've start with that we've used this word since at least Tertullian, but it's the economy. So part of, and I, uh, well, we had a debate on the Council of Nicaea where we didn't actually bring this up, but I think one other way to sort of recognize that that um, that there's a difference between Arian theology and Nicene theology, and, and a reason that I would prefer Nicene theology, but is a dist- distinction between God and his economy, or in God and God's economy, versus God and God's self. Um, and so part of what Athanasius says is, you know, basically, uh, yeah, Christ, what, like, you could also say that the flesh was created, uh, or excuse me, the Logos was created in the flesh, uh, but that's the economy of God. And God is perfectly capable and willing to involve himself with, uh, creation, and so, you know, so that – I think that, that part of the, the response of the Orthodox Church is to say, let's look at the whole picture. Let's look at the whole story. Let us, let's look at God throughout. Um, and, you know, and in that way we can, you know, have a – you can say, okay, well, we both have a different reading of Proverbs 8. Which one accords, which one fits with the way that the church has read the whole scriptures?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah that's, and that is obviously kind of a goal, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I like that you bring that up as I mean, one thing we're forgetting is to go back to the tradition. Arianism is new. This is, I mean, Tertullian radically predates. I mean, we read Tertullian, we read Irenaeus, we read Clement, we read Trinitarian language in all of those works. And it isn't until we get to this point where somebody starts coming in and saying, "No, we have to emphasize that the Son of God comes after." Which I would like to add. Uh, you know, I don't want to jump off this point, but one of my favorite passages in last night's reading, and um, unfortunately, I just it just came to mind, and I <laughs> I wasn't ready quite to turn there, so I'm not going to exactly have have the passage for you off the cuff. But uh, to give a little bit of background, he's addressing. Um, that argument that I brought up a bit ago of Arius, that if Jesus is the Son, then he must be, um, then he must come after the Father. Actually, I just found it. It's in chapter eight, in section twenty-six. So he says, if they assume that uh, from human examples that generation implies time, so here what he means is. Arius uses the argument that God, Jesus is the only begotten Son, and because he's begotten, he is generated from the Father, and it is logically necessary that he comes after the Father. And, and Athanasius says, where do they get that? Well, they get it from humans, right? Mm-hmm. A father begets a son, the son comes after. So he says, if they assume from human examples that generation implies time, why not from the same infer that it implies the natural? Meaning, what he means by that is, you want to learn what it means to be the begotten Son of God. Look at humanity, because that's the metaphor. Yeah, humans give birth. Okay, Arius, you're all about the fact that the human son is born after the after the uh, father, right? That he comes after the father. He goes, but why won't you also make the metaphoric movement to say, oh, and also the human son is the same kind of thing as the father, right? Why won't you make that? Because on Arius' view, the son of God is not the same kind of thing. Like when we spend all this time talking about essence, we're spending all this time talking about essence. What we mean is the stuff that he is. And so Athanasius takes it a big step. And then, you know, to a certain degree, this really appealed to me yesterday because I just spent Fourth of July with my brother and my nephew. And as I'm watching my brother walk around and talk, and as I'm watching him interact with his son, his, the gait of my brother, the speech of my brother, the way my brother laughs, it's all my father, right? Mm-hmm. I'm watching my dad in my brother. And Athanasius makes that point. He's like, we are not only the same kind of stuff as our father, but we literally have our fathers in us. Like, we, are, we literally have the same DNA in us. And he says, so if you're going to say we have to hold to the metaphor that a son comes after the father, he says, why wouldn't you follow all the logic out and say also that the son must be the same thing as the father, like the same kind of thing? And he goes, because Arius won't do that. And he goes on to then make the argument that, that of course, he doesn't feel the need to uh, to hold Uh, to the exact, or to temporal generation, and he uses arguments by analogy. He talks about the sun. He talks about rays flowing forth from the sun, which, by the way, is the exact metaphor that that Tertullian used. And he says the rays are co-equal, or not co-equal, but co-temporal with the sun itself. When the sun lights, the rays come. He says there's no difference in there. But he says the rays are the generation of the sun. They generate from the sun. So, too, the Son, that is S-O-N, not S-U-N, the Son of God generates from the Father. But he says, in this instance, like with the Son, it is co-temporal. And since the Father is eternal, then the Son must be co-eternal. I love the logic there. I love the I love the reasoning. I love the argument. I mean, Athanasius did a wonderful job here.
2: Yeah, I had a similar kind of beef with Arius wanting the Son, uh, S-O-N, in this scenario... Wanting like this son and father analogy to work his way in one instance, but not in the other, and I thought the, the, the very same thing because when we think about what essences are, they're the properties that you couldn't fail to have and yet be the thing you are. So I guess like the essences of a human are such that you know it's pretty hard to lay out, but essentially there's some things, some properties you have that you couldn't fail to have them. And not be human. So if if you had failed to have them, I should say, sorry. If you failed to have some of these properties, you just wouldn't be human. And those things, the funny thing is, in the analogy, it's like when I have a kid, he he like, you know, my child will have all the properties needed to be a human in that sense, in which case their essence is human. And so they literally share the exact same essences as me, though being numerically something separate from me. And this is why I also thought it was weird that the analogy only went so far. I'm like, so wait, then if, yeah, if you're going to take this analogy to its fullest extent, he's going to have literally all the same properties of God. And in such a sense that he's not like the major God. you're going to have just two completely separate triple O beings, babe. you're going to have two separate omnipotent, omniscient, Omnipresent, you know, omnibenevolent beings that have complete power over everything, yet they have to exist at the same time. Like, and that was that was the other thing I thought. Like, what the heck? Like, yeah, Aries. And,
1: and if you don't have two separate omnipotent, omniscient <laughs> beings, et cetera, then that would mean that the others, that the other being that is the sun, the second being, mm-hmm. is it the same thing or the same kind of thing as the first? Yeah, and then thus, then the sun analogy just fails. It fails, yeah. and now he's a created being which is different. Everybody knows that if I fashion a wooden boy out of wood, mm-hmm. he is not the same thing as him. <laughs> and nor nor have I begotten him. I've made him. That's a different thing. Yeah.
0: Chad? Yeah, I I I was just going to add um just as a general point that you know one reason I I don't want to sound like I'm defending Arius because my intention isn't really to defend him per se, uh but rather if you fully understand the arguments from where he comes, it actually helps to make sense of, you know, why Athanasius spins a whole, you know, discourse on Proverbs eight. Even if we don't read Proverbs eight, either we don't, you know, most contemporary, especially especially Protestants, don't read Proverbs eight either. How Athanasius does or how Arius does, it's just a completely opaque debate. Mm-hmm. If if you don't understand exactly what was at stake. Um, and so, you know, so like, you know, why would Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the, you know, the Anglican Communion, a large former. body of Christian, go ahead.
1: Former Archbishop of Canterbury.
0: Yeah, former, sorry. You know, why would he spend all this time reconstructing the argument of a, quote, known heretic? Well, there are multiple reasons, but at least somewhat. I mean, it's it, it's in, in a way a service of orthodoxy. Um, because it, it helps us say, okay, what was the conversation that was happening? Um, and how does that, you know, how do we better understand the, these people that, that we consider, um, great thinkers, cause you can't fully understand them if you don't understand who they're having a conversation with. Um, you know, I mean, I can only say it's somewhat like I went on a trip where I spent, I, I lived with an Orthodox Jewish guy, um, and he and I, you know, we started calling each other brother, um, because we were we were like man we were very similar in so many different ways but then we would have these conversations and the way that he looked at the Old Testament and looked at the law versus the way that I read the Old Testament and looked at the law didn't make me want to become Jewish but it it gave me a greater appreciation for where how he looked at love basically um, through the the Old Testament law and it gave me a window into sort of a Jewish way of thinking and I I you know I I loved him deeply like as a friend like he was like a really you know he still is a good friend of mine um but it's you know at the same token it was only through conversing with him that i i fully understood even a jewish understanding of 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 the old testament um the hebrew scriptures as we're told to call it macadamia now but <laughs> um you know so i think the same thing could be said for understanding areas yeah yeah, yeah That's fair, fair enough area. yeah well i i mean i I and think I, didn't think, I didn't think either of you were against that. I was just throwing that out there for, you know, listeners in general. If you wondered why we care what Arius thought, that's at least one reason. Well, and I think that
1: Christian theology has always been defined by opposition, right? I mean, it, you know, you look at the history of the church and you can just see, I mean, the five points of Calvinism come into existence at the Synod of Dort, because Jacob Arminius started teaching contrary to what Calvin had been teaching. And it forced these guys to get together and say, okay, let's define once and for all what we believe. The Council of Nicaea, the same thing. I think this goes way back. I mean, it's, it's, you know, for instance, when you read the New Testament and you read about the love feast, you read about Paul's exhortations concerning communion, it seems pretty clear that the way that the church in the first century was, was taking communion is radically different from the way that it was taking communion basically ever since. And, of course, Paul gives his injunction there in 1 Corinthians against um, overeating and overdrinking when you're partaking of the feast. Like he says, when you get together, it is not to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but some of you overeat and some of you get drunk and then others show up later and have none. When you read that, you go, oh, whatever he's doing is not what we do today. So how did it get to the point where everybody got a tiny wafer-thin piece of bread and a sip of wine from the cup? Well, I don't know, because there's no clear record of how that developed, but I have conjectured that Paul sits here and says, you guys have to change this practice. And what ended up happening is, pastors said, you know what? We're gonna solve this problem. We're gonna make you come to us. We're gonna give you a little bit, and that's it. And I mean, I think, that I think that's a very reasonable way to kind of interpret what happened in the developing history of the church. And so we're going to see this continue. I mean, ultimately Augustine is going to go pretty radical in his um, predestination theology as we're going to see eventually. Um, And it's going to be because of the radical nature of the Pelagian theology with which he is reacting or to which he is reacting. And so I think that that's, part of the history of the church. And I think you don't understand the history of the church if you don't understand those who are in opposition, uh, those who are, uh, you know, who are putting forward theses that we might look at and say, mm, that doesn't quite seem right. So do we
0: consider them necessary? Is the, is the opponent heretic necessary? And what does that mean for Christian theology that it necessarily needs an opponent?
2: I, I mean, it seems to me like, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily need an opponent. I mean, someone's going
1: <laughs> to. You're thinking philosophically. You're like, it's not logically necessary. <laughs> well,
0: it's,
2: not, it's not logically necessary, but also I don't know if it is practically. Like, I think I would imagine someone long before Arius, it just wasn't recorded because it didn't create a huge controversy probably asked like a lay person probably asked their bishop you know so you keep calling the son what do you mean by that like Mm -hmm. I'm sure someone was curious before Arius and I'm sure that essentially bishops were giving answers of course to some of these questions before Arius and perhaps I don't you know we don't know if like five bishops and like you know the in some Greek city state once just met together for breakfast one morning and talked about it. We don't know about the informal ways in which people were coming to opinions and they're obviously studying on their own. I mean, I think to a certain extent there was unassumed orthodoxy that was sort of just because they read the scripture and used reason and came to, a basic understanding, but it's kind of true that you do sort of need orthodoxy or sorry, you need heresy to kind of make your orthodoxy more clear and to make sure that this thing got recorded well and written down and then spread. Because I think that's the part that maybe we need heresy for, because yeah, I mean, I, and I would say this, I was thinking of it philosophically because I was actually literally thinking in philosophy, you would, have the same thing, or even in science, technically, it's like if someone didn't come along and say, wait, maybe like, the electron doesn't move that way, and I don't know, and then it's only through basically in any practice really, in academia, essentially, it's like it only comes through questioning. Like, is this really the way it is? And then that's the only way we come to establish firmly what it is. Yeah. Well,
1: plus, it creates the narrative of the history of the church, and I don't know, I mean, I'm sure somebody maybe who's more purely intellect would take issue with this, but I like to think of the universe as something, as a story that is being written by a creator. And I think if there is a creator, which obviously I believe there is, it makes sense to think of him as unfolding history as a story. And for a story to exist, you have to have an antagonist. There has to be a protagonist. There has to be an antagonist. That's what leads to the problem, which leads to the climax, which leads to resolution. And in the history of the church, the heretics are the antagonists. Are they necessary in a in a logical way? Certainly not. Are they necessary in a practical way, as as Trevor just said? I think probably he's right. I think, I think they're probably not necessary in that sense. And I think he makes a really good point about just the practical workings of life. Like how many people in the second century Christians got together like we are right now without the microphone and the computer and just talked about this kind of stuff. We don't know, like the real story of history is not told. I mean, if you're talking about the actual ins and outs of everybody's daily life, that is lost to history. But it seems like we've done, it seems like for whatever reason, history as we know it, as it has unfolded in a narrative is a narrative. And I think there's a reason for that, and and uh, no doubt the 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 heretics play such a central role in that. Are they necessary? Probably not in any of the normal senses, but I think they're necessary to the story in that way. And I would add, I like what Trevor said a moment ago that they they help to clarify the mind. I mean, they force us to be more specific, right? I mean, that's ultimately you're forced to really take a stand and to really define. Because you need to make sure that you can answer the heretic, that you can tell him or her why or what it is you actually believe.
0: Yeah, and I mean and and I, I agree with all those points. It's just it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me to then call them the heretic because you're basically saying, you know, because then they get exiled. And I don't know. This is just. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm going off the board here. This has less to do with Athanasius' theology against Arian, uh, against Arius. But it's just like a question that I have. Like you know, in may and so like in some sort of like ultimate salvific sense, um, I need the heretic. And I'm, you know, I'm using that sort of blithely, but I need the heretic in order to uh, elucidate my theology and maybe even to understand my theology better. But at the end of the day, I'm going to put them out of communion, at least exile them, and possibly um, if, you know, if, if I under, you know, if it really is, uh, I mean – I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to say, say this. Possibly correctly. damnation. That's what you're thinking. Yes, you possibly, possibly. Possibly damnation. Although I know that I'm not the one who gets to decide who is damned. Um, but yeah, that's it. Possibly damnation. Like you know that. Like that. That. That's like that's sad to me. Because <laughs> um, like I think that the conversation's fuller because they're there. Um, and it's it's like this hard thing for me to like balance with. I also think that there's a truth of the matter. And I think that we should continue to argue for the truth of the matter, but I don't want them to be consigned to all eternity in hell.
2: Well, and this kind of does get to a bit of a different question. I'm sure a reformed person would have a totally different answer than maybe someone else. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Well, this just does get into the question of soteriology and what we think about salvation. I do have some, I've, I've often thought about like, the robust idea of, you know, were some of these heretics justified in their thoughts? And then I think about it, I'm like, yeah. I mean, like some of them weren't like crazy for what that they're thinking. Does God fault you for things when you just don't reason correctly, even though you were totally dedicated to them? I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's, that's, I think that's a question. I mean, things like, things like narcissism are sort of like, Come on, those guys were basically running buy one, get one deals, learn the secrets of God. I mean, they were essentially selling things because they were just greedy people, I I think. And, I mean, I don't know. You could question why some heretics had their motives, but, but if you take this to the modern times, we're all a heretic to someone else. I mean, truthfully. I mean, in, in all technicality, for example, like into the Reformed tradition, I mean, you know, Arianism is a is heresy. It's not true theology to reform people. So I mean like there's ways in which everyone's gonna be a heretic to someone else. So and I don't know, there's a there's a lot more identity and inclusion now amongst Christian denominations. So I don't know, it's kinda that's kinda hard because in history it was you're right. It was a bit more clear cut and those people literally got banned from empires, but it's kind of a different scenario. So I don't know. That's a tough question actually.
1: Yeah. You know, I think what I would say, first of all, I am totally with you, Chad, in terms of my sympathies regarding, um, this is how I feel about it. I mean, I I, 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 you know, I, I do agree that the existence of opposition in the church for the sake of refining is good. It's a good thing. You know what I mean? Um, At the same time, I don't necessarily think that it automatically, just because it provides a good, just because heresy can provide a good end. I don't think that automatically should absolve it. Obviously. I mean, you could make a, an argument by analogy, just, just in a state or in a society. It's not like that state or society begins with every law fully formed. oftentimes, criminal actions have to happen for a new law to be kind of written to clarify. Um, and I don't think that we should argue that the person who gave us the new wisdom, who gave us the new insight ought to be let off the hook just because of that insight. Like if he committed the crime, he, he needs to, he needs to be, you know, dealt with accordingly. So that's my argument by analogy. I don't think that that necessarily holds across all points, obviously. Um, I know, my own thoughts on uh, on end, on final judgment uh, I, I guess I could say this I do believe in judgment I believe God must judge I do believe that that will result in punishment I can't quite define that exactly what that looks like or um, nor can I nor is it I think easy to pigeonhole who goes there so to speak I think it's an oversimplification to to just say well, whoever ascribes to these ten things or whatever, you know. Um, At the same time, I do think it exists. I think people must go there. But I will say this. If there's one statement that is kind of thrown out so often that I disagree with vehemently, it's the statement that the cliché that that people use, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I hate that statement, okay? (laughs) There is no way that when you read the Scripture... Especially in the New Testament where Jesus so clearly lays out an ethics of intent that the road to hell, that that is the road to God judging you is based on good intention. That, that, That the judge of all the universe. I mean, I think about Abraham as he's sitting there pleading with God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, what if there are 50 people, righteous people in that city? Will you destroy it for 50 righteous? And God says, I won't destroy it for 50 righteous. Well, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? God says, even if there are 10 righteous in this city, I will not destroy it. When Abraham is pleading with God, Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So should the judge of all the earth punish people because of good intention? (laughs) That does not compute with me. Like God sitting up there saying, man, you were so well intended. You wanted to do what was right. You wanted to understand, but sorry, You happened to cross the wrong books and you got it wrong. (laughs) Boom. I'm going to torture you in fire forever. I just don't believe that. So those who go to hell to God's judgment, I have no doubt scripturally are heading there because of bad intention. And so I, I would, this actually kind of provides a nice little gateway into Athanasius's speech concerning Arius because Athanasius seems to think that Arius is a monster, like not just a guy who got it wrong. He thinks he is an, I mean, he vilifies him. Now I'm not saying Athanasius is right at all. I don't know, Yeah, but he does make him sound to be just the worst, most lecherous human ever. <laughs> and I know that all of the Orthodox teachers do. They have to, and maybe they do it because they intellectually or emotionally feel like they have to, to justify the impending judgment that's going to come upon this person. But I should also add, Athanasius, I assume, at least knew Arius somewhat. And it's possible he's actually right. It's possible Arius really is just the monster that he makes him out to be. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I, I would say that at least from my understanding, if Arius is condemned, he's condemned not because of good intention.
0: Yeah, I think um, I'm going to need to go here pretty soon. Um I don't really, you know, I don't really have a whole lot more to add on on Arius. Um I mean, it does seem from some of his other writings that his intention was to avoid uh being a Sabalian. He didn't he didn't want to believe in sort of strict modalism that uh that Jesus was just a different mode or kind of 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 the Father, that the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit were just different modes of one being. Um So he, you know, he does seem to want to not be in that kind of a heretical position. Um, You know, I, I, you know, I guess the more that I read about Arius, the more that I think like, you know, maybe, maybe he didn't fully understand that the, didn't understand the church as a universal community, um, which I think he should be at fault for. And I think he should be at fault for misunderstanding that, you know, that, that understanding the essence of God requires Jesus Christ, uh, to be God. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's at issue. So I would disagree with him there on the other hand, like I, you know, I am sympathetic to some of his, his stances and sort of, I think it's probably not like, I guess it's just hard for me to read Athanasius like Tom just described. I mean, the rhetoric is so overheated. It's so overwrought. Um, and, you know, I just want to go, good night. Can you calm down for a minute? <laughs> but
2: well, I mean, yeah, in a sense, I mean, don't we all like just have generally like complete empathy for people who don't get the trendy right? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that is the most out of all doctrines. It's the one where, I mean, we probably. We all each probably know a modalist personally who's a modalist on accident because right. there's just many All people. of them. I mean, like, yeah. almost everybody I know is, like, a modalist on accident. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> like, it's one of those doctrines where it's like, I don't – I kind of don't fault anyone really intellectually. I often think, like, Arius is an example where I think he did, in a sense, take some things a little too far, and I don't think the belief is justified. But I often do think, yeah, I mean, in general, you not understanding, that's totally justified. I mean, oh, they're all different persons. Well, that's clear. Oh, they all seem to be the same being. Well, that seems clear, too. It's like, oh, what do we do about this? You know, I mean, like, there was a reason this was something that needed to be hammered out for sure. I mean, it's not, it's by no means easy. And Christ's relationship is even harder. I mean, how is, how are you supposed to identify the Jewish God? who transcends everything was now a man like this just seemed, I'm sure this was not easy for people. So, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, in a sense, I, I get what you're saying because yeah, there's a lot of ways in which I'm, I am sympathetic, even though I think he took things too far. So, Oh
1: yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, when we all stand before God on judgment day, I can't imagine again, back to the, road to hell paved with good intentions thing. I can't imagine that his real, his fundamental question is like, but did you believe in (laughs) Homoousian? You know what I mean? Like this incredibly obscure, very difficult. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't think that's the issue. I, I can't speak to whether Arius was a true Christian in his heart, so to speak, born again, what his intentions were, any of those things. I can't address that. But, I can't believe that it's going that ultimately judgment is going to be predicated upon uh, ascribing to these very abstract, weird, difficult, out there notions of of Greek terminology that nobody else used. I mean, um, by the way, I know we're short on time, I, so I'm not going to put this out as a like a discussion point. But I would just like to add that that this work, this whole book, Athanasius is really wrestling with Scripture and. Our listeners only heard a glimpse of that uh, this morning. And the reality is is he addresses so many of the passages that really concern the Trinity. I mean, I read him talk about John 1, of course, and John 8 and Philippians chapter 2. And, I mean, he's referencing all of these passages that regard both the oneness of Christ with the Father and the separateness of Christ with the Father. He's he's exegeting them. He's trying to explain them. He's trying to explain how and why the scriptures are consistent with his view and how and why when Arius brings a counter passage, Arius is misreading it. And so, you know, here he is, uh, you know, I, I just, it would have been awesome if we had another 10 hours or so yeah. to just really walk through the way he's exegeting these passages and look at the arguments and really address, uh, address those in full. Cause I think he's Athanasius is a smart guy. He has a lot of insight, and um, it would have been great if we could have done that, but time does not permit.
0: Yeah, and it's not even just comport with his view. It's comport with what he takes the the church's view to be, Um, which I think, you know, again, like Athanasius has a sense of the collective, whereas – Arius was associated with the Milesian schism. Um, You know, and whether, like, there's some question as to whether or not that's fair, but it does seem that he also was a part of a group that was ordaining their own uh, priests. Um, And so there is this whole separate question of, like, Athanasius is looking at big picture, you know, the whole of the church, um, in addition to uh, what is the correct interpretation. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's um that's also should be stressed is he in continuity uh with the way that what the church has been teaching um you know before him yeah yeah um all right well we'll call that good thanks for listening we'll be back next week with the ba- with basil the great's series of sermons on genesis 1 called the hexameron